When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Live in the Bream with the host of Fox News Sunday, Shannon Bream. This week on Live in the Bream, he is a provocative conservative voice who continues to grow his reach. He's already a New York Times bestseller, but he's got a brand new book. I suspect we'll also repeat that uh, achievement. It is out this week. It's called Nation of Victims, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit, and The Path Back to Excellence. It is Vivek Ramaswamy. Great to have you with us. Good to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Listen, I, I, I think all of us have felt this. You put into words this kind of idea that people, um, you know, assume the worst that the world is against them, that they have no chance for success. But if you've lived in any other country, visited any other country, you know, there's more opportunity here than anywhere. That's what we were built on. How did we lose that? Yeah, so I, that's what I trace in this book is the history of it. You know, some of it traces back to the post-Civil War era. So there's a longer version of the history. I think it it started more recently, though, where we're in the middle of a generation that's in the part of the largest intergenerational wealth transfer in human history, from baby boomers to millennials to Gen Z. And one of the arguments I make in the book is that incumbency is the mother of victimhood. And so the way it works is you start as a nation of underdogs, then you become a nation of, of victims, but it's because you first start as insurgents, then you become incumbents. That incumbency breeds mm. an entitlement, a sense of complacency, a sense of laziness. One of the arguments I make in the book is that victimhood then fits laziness like a glove, and that's what ultimately can lead to national decline if we don't turn it around. And so I trace yeah. not just American history, but even the Roman history and, and even the rises and falls of Rome to see that this isn't unique to our culture, but it is an important part of it today. And studying history can be a way out of it in the present as well. Yes. So we'll get to solutions because we need those. I want to ask you about this seems like a topic that fit very well with what you're writing about right now, which is this idea of quiet quitting. Um, it refers to the practice, quote, of mentally checking out and living by the realization that your worth as a person is not defined by your labor. It says the quiet quitter won't subscribe to the hustle culture. Instead, do the bare minimum. The employee in question may still show up for work, but when they do, they do only what's expected of them and no more. A quiet quitter will no longer go above and beyond and will only do what they have to before they move on to something else. How, where does this fit in, in sort of this, um, you know, idea of victimhood and kind of lagging behind instead of being the overachievers and, you know, the upstarts that we once were? So, so I talk about this aspect of employee culture in the book extensively, and some of it's from even firsthand experience, Shannon. And, and the, thing that, the thing that's puzzling about it is you saw this a little bit during the pandemic when the government gave people incentives not to work, to then drop out of the workforce. But the puzzling part about it is that when those policies even rolled back, people didn't really start going back to work. Or even if they did, they started doing it in this half-hearted way that involved this new and apparently widespread quiet quitting phenomenon. So, so what's behind that? That's one of the things to get to the bottom of. And, and one of the discoveries I made in, in sort of studying this and thinking about this and writing about in the book was that, you know what? This would have never had staying power. Laziness is often a short-term bout. Sometimes it's created by bad government policies and bad incentives we set up. But 
when laziness has staying power is when it's disguised with moral legitimacy. So as so I talk, for example, about this woman, Doreen Ford, in the book, she's somebody who was one of the leaders of the so-called anti-work movement on Reddit and in other online channels over the course of the last couple of years. And what she says is this isn't just about laziness. This isn't just about staying home. This isn't just about having more free time. This is about the grand struggle against the oppression of capitalism, against the colonialism of capitalism. And, and, and you know what that does is that gives this new form of laziness and sloth a sense of not only moral legitimacy, but even moral superiority. That's what's really giving it staying power. And I think that that's one of the under-discussed aspects of this is that it's not just what the economists say, which I agree with, that the government gave us these incentives, and even further that we develop these habits in response to those incentives, such that when the incentives to not work go away, people don't still go back to work. I agree with all of that. I've been an economic analyst of such behaviors as well in the book, but I think it's deeper. The moral legitimacy that this is doused in that's actually what makes it even more infectious because everyone wants to believe that they're morally superior. And what way to believe that you're morally superior if you're also doing it by not working, being able to stay home, sit on the couch and play video games. Great. That really gives it staying power. It sounds very convenient. Um, <laughs> but as much as we all need a break now and then, you're a hard driving, hardworking guy. I love what I do. I work all the time. But I feel like I feel like it's a privilege and I feel like it gives you purpose. I worry about a society full of people who say, I'm going to rebel by not working and that's going to be my moral protest. When I do think there's something intrinsically in each of us, whether you're working in the home and with your family or out or, you know, sending rockets to Mars. I mean, I think all of us need some kind of purpose or some form of work in our lives. Absolutely, Shannon. In many ways, so so this book was was a sequel to Woke Inc., right? It's a Nation of Victims. My current book it was a sequel to the last one. I left the last book off with the final chapter that asked the question of what is that hunger for a cause and purpose and meaning and identity that we're lacking today in our country? And, and one of the arguments I made is that at the end of the day, the kinds of things that used to fill that sense of hunger and purpose and meaning and identity, things like patriotism or faith, those have disappeared. But one of the things that filled that vacuum was hard work. People actually derive meaning and purpose and a sense of and a sense of higher calling from even the work that they do. And that's part of what we've lost as well. And the irony is I think part of what we're seeing in the anti-work culture with this moral legitimacy, even moral superiority attached to it, is that people are starving for a sense of identity and is starving for a cause. And what they fail to realize is the anti-work moral superiority case for dismantling capitalism, that's not really giving them fulfillment. It might be the equivalent of fast food, but it's not really starving their, filling their hunger for cause. Actually doing something meaningful might actually be what fills that hunger for cause even more richly. And, you know, it's not about just working 24-7 all the time. And I, I do spend a lot of my day doing what I would call work, but it doesn't feel like work. It feels like I'm pursuing my sense of calling. I, I know from our conversations over the last couple of years that you feel the same way. And you know what? Everyone needs a change of pace once in a while. So this isn't sort of some sort of old call for, you know, being a, a whipping, whip, whipping man of a boss or a parent. It, it's not that. It's the idea that we can view our work, the way we spend our time productively as a source of personal fulfillment, of self-actualization, without saying that this is about actually working less or even being anti-work, which is a big part of what you're seeing in progressive circles these days. We'll have more Live in the Bream in a moment. 
It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. We're talking to Vivek Ramaswamy. Nation of Victims is his brand new book, Identity Politics, The Death of Merit and the Path Back to Excellence. Uh, A couple more questions for you. First of all, the death of merit, this idea that um, merit-based, one could argue objective data, things like test scores and things like that, um, they're a bad thing. They're a negative thing. Where where did that idea come from and how do we push back on that? Or should we? I think... Well, I think we should push back on it, but I think we can't just push back on it by reciting slogans that we you know, would have memorized back in the 1990s. You know, th- there's a full frontal assault on merit in this country, and there's been a strong intellectual case for it made by folks like a former Yale law professor of mine, Daniel Markovitz, who wrote a book. The, the, what, what do we say? The, uh, the meritocracy trap was the name of his book. So, so I think it's important to take seriously the best arguments for the other side, mm-hmm. but still make the modern case for merit in the face of it. So that's what I do in this book. I think that a lot of the anti-merit case came out of the narratives of systemic racism and systemic inequity that we see perpetuating over the last 10 years to say that inequitable outcomes on the basis of group identity metrics, be it gender, be it race, be it sexual orientation, be it something else, is automatic evidence that meritocracy itself is a farce because after all, if everyone were starting at the same place, then you wouldn't expect to see differences on the basis of race or gender based on where people finish in the end. So this is just evidence that meritocracy itself was a myth. And so part of what I do in this book is is to take some serious time to talk affirmatively about equality of opportunity. We can't just talk about the restoration of merit without talking about the conditions in the educational system that still get people to the same starting line. And, and I think that's something that we that the conservative movement, myself included, can do better, can do a better job of, of talking more about how it is we restore equality of opportunity that then provides the obvious foundation for why meritocracy is not only the best system for delivering economic welfare and American prosperity, but is also the most just system for allocating rewards as well, rather than using a new form of, of racial or gender discrimination to deliver so-called equitable outcomes. Mm-hmm. So, so I hope that's what readers on both the left and right can take away from, from that portion of the book, is it's not just about the case for meritocracy. It is also part and parcel of the case for actually restoring equality of opportunity where we may lack it. But once we've done that, don't attack meritocracy. It's what got us this far, 250 years mm-hmm. into this American experiment. I think it'll get us a big part of the next 250 years as well if we're able to revive it. Yeah, and you do talk a lot about solutions in the book, which is important. So we're not just talking about the problems. We are talking about solutions. So my last question for you is you say this is part of it. You say forgiveness enables excellence. Tell us what you mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so look, I make a case in this book from the path from victimhood back to excellence. That's 180 degrees separated on the spectrum. Okay, so I say that our national identity today revolves around seeing ourselves as victims. What we need to restore is a revival of our national identity around the unapologetic pursuit of excellence sounds good but how do we how do we actually how do we actually achieve that uh that's a tougher question and i say the path from excellence to forgiveness path from victimhood to excellence runs through forgiveness and that's something that we have we have missed in the last in the last 10 years and whether your path is is a christian path whether it is a secular path offered by Immanuel Kant, whatever it may be, that's going to be, I think, what we need to revive is, is our case for forgiveness in our country. Well, there is so much meat to digest in this book. It's called Nation of Victims, Identity, Politics, The Death of Merit, and The Path Back to Excellence by Vivek Ramaswamy. He's been our guest this week on Live in the Bream. We hope to see you out there on the road sometime soon, Vivek. Thank you and congrats. 
Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Take care. You too. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.